welcome to Eric's Perspective. Uh, joining me today is the wonderful Lynn Thompson. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Lynn. Thank you so <laughs> much again for being with us. It's an honor and a privilege to have you on the program. I should also add right up front, she is our uh, poet laureate, laureate excuse me, for Los Angeles, city right. of Los Angeles. So Absolutely. congratulations Thank on that. Thank you so much. <laughs> you know, I, I do kind of feel I was thinking as I was on my way here, I, I owe you a great debt of gratitude. Because early on, you believed in me, you supported me, you let me read in the gallery, and it made all the difference to my confidence. So you're, you're partially responsible if anything goes wrong. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I will gladly take that responsibility. <laughs> That's so great. And I think everybody benefits as a result because they get to experience your poetry. And thank so, you. So thank you thank again. Thank you so much. Fantastic. So I thought maybe as a way to get started, perhaps you can just uh, let us know, uh, where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I'm that rare native Angelino. My parents were immigrants from the Caribbean, came to New York, went to Chicago, and then ended up in Los Angeles. I'm actually their adopted daughter. Uh Um, I have four older brothers, and I think my mother very desperately wanted a girl, so voila, along (laughs) came Lynn. (laughs) Excellent. So are your brothers also in Los Angeles? Um, They are. One of my brothers passed away in 2019, but the other three are all in Southern California. Uh, Excellent, excellent. And so how did you get started with poetry? What what sparked your interest in the beginning? Can you trace it back? I I can trace it back. Um, I used to tell people, well, I started scribbling in high school until my sister-in-law corrected me, and she said, I still have the poem you wrote when you were 10 when I married your brother. I said, please don't show that poem. To anybody, I'm begging you. (laughs) But when she shared it with me, it reminded me that I was always interested in language and words, and I was a voracious reader as a child, and my dad was a closet poet. Um, My mom wasn't very encouraging of it. It wasn't a very practical thing in her mind. Yes. But he loved writing, um, did it more after he retired. But he would read me Langston Hughes very early on. He thought Langston Hughes was just and so I think a lot of it came from an encouragement from him about language he was very precise about language about spelling about how you spoke all of that so I really think my my interest in it was sparked even when I didn't know it was being sparked ah excellent that I think that's fantastic so um you mentioned Langston Hughes. Were there any other, early on, were there any other uh, po- poets that stand out as an early influence? You know, I think that um, Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven and Annabelle Lee, I was, I was listening to the rhythms of all of that and really taking that in. Mm-hmm. And when people ask me, well, what do you count as your early and greatest influences? I said, listen, I was raised on jazz, rock and roll, and the American musical theater. And when I go back and I think about the types of music I was listening to, I don't have a formal training in meter and what they call prosody, the study of poetry, but I was hearing poetry all along. I was hearing how rhythms worked. I was hearing how repetition worked, how language fit together, how the meanings of words fit together. I was learning really through music and came into it that way. So when I went to put my first book together, I had a wonderful editor. But she was saying, you know, I I think you're missing some of the formal 
elements that you need to include in the poetry. And it dawned on me, and I wrote, and I said, you know what? It strikes me you're listening to Mozart, and I'm listening to Miles. <laughs> and, it, and it's a different rhythm. Sure. And so before she put the book together, I flew back to Massachusetts where the press was located. And I said, I, I just want you to listen to me read the poems. And once I did that, she said, do whatever you want. I get it. I get, I get how the music is working for you. And I'm hearing, I don't, she didn't name a poet, but something in a more um, formal poetry than my jazz-inflected type of poetry. I love that analogy, by the way, because there's something, as you mentioned, more formal about that art form of, like you mentioned, Mozart and so forth. Right. Whereas there's a more spontaneity, uh, I would say, in somebody like Miles. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, you take in the rhythm of Nina Simone or even, even you know, and, and Aretha, and you really listen to what they're doing, and you and you infuse your poetry with that kind of kind of sound. It's not going to sound like Mozart. It's not going to sound like you know filling your famous poet, mm-hmm. which is not a problem. I mean, those are great poets I admire, but it's not me. It's not my my sound. Right. And I think when the first poem I wrote, when I said, "Okay, I think this is my voice," was a poem about my parents trying to make sure that their children understood the culture that they came from. Very small islands in the West Indies, St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And they were trying to save some of that for us. And when I finally heard that and put it in the poem, I said, that's my voice. That's the poet that I am that's, that's taking that culture and melding it into the culture I'm being raised in. That's very interesting because uh, in almost every art form, there is that part of the artist development where they're kind of admiring and listening to various uh, artists and so forth. And then there's that moment yeah. when all of a sudden they discover their own voice. Yeah. And that's what it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, it's great. I mean, when that light goes off, you just think, oh, wow, okay, can I, can I do this? Can I, can I make this work for me? Yes. And, it, and it did work for me. So. Wow, I'm getting chill bumps hearing you describe that. That's fantastic. Uh, also, another thing I'm noticing is that music, you know, you're using terms that are used to describe music, but also, by the way, used to destri- describe uh, visual arts as well, like Absolutely. rhythm and repetition and things like that. Absolutely. I was thinking of you knowing that I was coming to, for this conversation. Um, it was a repeat, actually, but there's a, on HBO, I believe, a, a documentary on black artists and Glenn Ligon was on it, and Kahindi Wiley was on it. Oh, um, Faith Ringgold. Yeah. It's, some, it's something toward the light, or I don't remember. The I title, can't remember the title. But David Driscoll was David on Driscoll it. was yeah. the primary primary mover behind right. it, and it, it was fantastic. But they did talk a lot about the rhythm of the pieces, and there was one I can't remember the artist. He saved all the piano pieces that were kind of stacked out in a yard somewhere and kind of built this mound. And he said he didn't know what he was going to do with them, but he just knew they needed to be saved. Uh-huh. Um, kind of a, you know, a John Otterbridge type of thing. And um, he put together this fabulous sculpture, but he said, I started seeing a rhythm in the wood. Uh, that's it. Yeah. That's it. Right. And that's one of the things I hope that this podcast does convey, the interplay between all the various forms of art. Absolutely. Uh, different folks choose different 
ways of expressing themselves. And Absolutely. For some, it's natural to express it musically. Some, it's uh, poetry. Some, it's literature, etc. cetera. Uh, so anyway, I just think it's kind of both, cool. Both uh, uh, types of art, both painting and music, show up all the time in my in my poems. And people have asked me about that. They said, oh, you're, you're always either talking about an instrument or a singer or a you know, you're having a conversation with Sam Cooke or you're referring to, I did a piece um, in my first book on Robert Johnson. Um, the blues. Uh, the blues, the band. blues master, yeah, right? absolutely. And tried to put um, a musical uh, bent into how the poem was written. And it, it was a lot of fun for me and people have enjoyed that piece. I think because it's both poetry, but they can kind of think about him and what he was doing. So. Yeah. And one other thing, I just wanted to emphasize something you said earlier. So just because your poetry doesn't fit into the Mozart mold doesn't mean you don't like Mozart or it's someone that, else could, shouldn't like it. Absolutely. It's just a different form of expression, that's all. Absolutely. I was listening, I'm watching the uh, Olympics and one of the skaters was skating to a Debussy piece that's one of my favorites. Yeah. So I think... Artists can appreciate other artists no matter what, even if it's not the way that they perform right. or even their chosen genre. Right. I'm, not, I'm not a dancer. I'm not a musician. But that doesn't mean I can't appreciate those, those arts. Architecture. Um, I was, uh, I'm just starting a book about a man who was collecting old guitars in the South, hmm. but then he was hanging them in trees like they'd been lynched. Oh, really? It's uh, Fr- Freeman... Shoot, I'll have to send you the name. Okay. It's, it's, as soon as I saw it advertised, I have more books than I know what to do with. <laughs> I have to. I have to have that book. Excellent, excellent. Um, so, actually, you you not only have written poetry, but you've also written uh, prose. Am I right about that? Some prose, um, not as much as I hope to write, but I have started to write some prose. Think about maybe some short stories. Um, someone asked me, don't you have a novel in you? And I said, you know, the great thing about poetry, 40 lines, you're in, you're out, you're done. <laughs> I said, 200,000 words, eh, not so much, right? <laughs> so, but I'm, think, I'm starting to think about it a little bit more, and I have been, I've done some reviews, and um, I wrote, I guess what they would categorize as a creative nonfiction piece that was published online um, with beautiful artwork with it. Um, because I was so concerned about the way the 1619 project is being attacked, right. um, minimized. You can't teach it. And there's actually, as far as I know, this legislation is still pending that would defund any school that taught the 1619 project. Any federal funds that any public school was receiving oh. would be taken if they taught that project. And I'm like, are you crazy? What is wrong with you? Uh, that seems so not only misguided, but like an overreach. An overreach. And the students are saying, some teachers have reported, the students are saying, I know that's what the law says, but can you not teach us this anyway? Yeah. You know, there was a, a program with uh, Regina King. I can't remember it now. But the beginning shots of it are the Tulsa massacre. Hmm. And I had so many friends, both black and white, say, did you know about this? I said I knew about it, but not because I ever learned it in school, but because I study history, I'm a student of history, and so yes, I knew that this had happened, but there were so many people who were stunned to know that this had happened, 
So the other day on some news program, they were saying that the teachers in Tulsa are being told that they can say where Tulsa is, but they can't talk about the massacre. Wow. And so it's That's kind scary. of mind-boggling yeah. that. So a lot of my poetry now has really gone into trying to save history, what mm. we've learned from history, because otherwise it's not the kids' fault if you don't teach them or direct them to the books. Right. How are they going to know? Right. right. So it's, it's, we're living in a very scary time. I agree. Uh, that, when you were talking about that, it reminded me of the incident in uh, Wilmington, North mm-hmm. Carolina in exactly. the late 19th century, where exactly. it's one of the few instances where a democratically elected government was literally overthrown. It was overthrown. And uh, race and was an issue in that situation. And we just too. had that a year ago. Yeah. You know, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around, are these people trying to overthrow the government? You know, um, but yeah, it happens. And I think... America has been allowed to think it was exempt from those sorts of things, but we're not. Or sweep it under the or rug. Or sweep it under the rug. So that never happened. you never talk about it. You never talk about it. What happened on January 6th was just enthusiastic, enthusiastic political discourse, I think. Is I couldn't believe that as a headline. I saw that and I thought, wow. that's a really incredible way to describe it. If we hadn't seen it with our own eyes, yeah. we, might, we might be inclined to believe it. You know, some people were very heated. Yeah. No, they killed people. Yeah. You know? So. So going back now towards your development, uh, I just want to take us back again. So now, let's see, you went to high school, presumably, in Los Angeles? Went to Dorsey High School in Los Angeles, Scripps College in Claremont, part of the Claremont Colleges. Ah, okay. And what was your uh, major in college? (laughs) Social psychology. Don't ask me why. I had some idea that I was going to help people. or I, I, I don't know what I thought. I, I really don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> well, maybe, I don't know, maybe you were thinking, uh, I know when I, I graduated with a degree in history, for example, um, and I love history, so right. that, that was like a nice right. fit. Right. But I was also thinking of maybe becoming a lawyer, and I understood right. that having a history degree would would be a path. I don't know, were you thinking maybe along the lines? I know you ended up becoming a lawyer. I ended and we'll up get to becoming that. a lawyer, but I really think that that happened because, so I graduate from Scripps and I suddenly realize I have to be an adult now. That's, that's not good. <laughs> I have to pay my own bills. I gotta do that. That's not good. And ended up working for a lawyer and thought, this is interesting. I could do this. Went to law school. If I had known myself better, I think I would have been an appellate lawyer because I was really interested in the way that the law worked as opposed to being a litigator. I see. But you and I were raised in the time of Perry Mason and the Defenders and all these lawyer shows. Oh, yeah. And you kind of thought, well, that's what you do. It's exciting. you know. It's exciting. And the, the person always confesses on the stand. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's fascinating. And, and, and the wrong person inevitably was accused. Was and, accused then, and then they get vindicated exactly. in the end. Exactly. Someone said, no, it's, I did it. I did it. <laughs> it was great. That's not how it works. <laughs> and um, I realized as I went on that I was really more interested how the law worked. I see. And how it applied to people. And how where there was a, where there, the court had found something incorrectly or the jury, that I was interested in how do you apply the law right. to address that. Um, and then literally, literally one day I woke up. So I'm going along and I'm thinking, well, I'm a lawyer. I'm here now. 
And I woke up and I said, you know, the thing that's wrong with your life is you're not writing poetry. Literally. So I said, yeah, I can't, I can't be a lawyer and write poetry. There are, there are many poets who have very high-powered jobs like that. Wallace Stevens, I think, comes to mind. He was a VP of an insurance company. But he would go home every night and he would write his poems pretty prolifically. Mm-hmm. That wasn't working for me. You know, E.E. E. Cummings was a doctor, I believe. Uh, I think it was E.E. E. Cummings who was a physician. Um, but that wasn't working for me. I needed another job. Mm. So once I realized I really wanted to do that, started looking around, got a call from a headhunter who said, you know, there's this great job at UCLA. I think you'd be fantastic for it. And I said, oh, I don't know. I've never done anything like that before. I'm not sure I'd be the right person. Hung up the phone, and then I realized, isn't this what you were asking for, some other kind of job? Called her back. Long story short, I got the job, which freed me up to, to pay a little bit more attention to the writing. Oh. So that's really how I made the shift. So that was kind of a transition. <coughs> once, you, a once, transition. You, once you got that job, you were able yeah. to turn back to yeah. the... So while you were a litigator, were you completely not writing poetry or was it just so sporadic that it was so sporadic it almost doesn't even count yeah. you know occasionally I try to do something but I wasn't focused on it I wasn't reading as much poetry as you need to read to be a good poet it's like anything else someone practicing the scales and practicing famous music on the piano they're playing Debussy or whoever they're playing because you need to know how this how you got to this point Right. So I wasn't reading enough. I wasn't going to any poetry readings. I wasn't part of that community at all. Um, and I, for, for me, I believe those are things that really contribute to your growth. At the end of the day, you have to do the work yourself. Right. But what really contributes to your growth is what you take in of the poetry world, like, like anything. Sure. You know, you study art or, or whatever it is. You need to, to be part of that in a, in a deep and meaningful way. Mm-hmm. to begin to start to see yourself doing that. So as an undergrad, did you ever take any coursework in uh, poetry? Not in creative writing, but I took a lot of literature courses. Mm-hmm. All my electives were literature courses. Oh, okay. Why I didn't major in literature, I have no idea. Well, I think I ex- actually I do have an idea because I didn't want to end up as a teacher. I see. I was pretty confident that that was the one thing I a lot of teachers in my family. Um, I had to do something different, be different. Sure. And so I think I thought mistakenly that if I majored in literature, I would end up teaching literature. And I didn't, I didn't want to do that. Right. I really didn't want to do that. So I don't know what I thought I was going to do with social psychology, but um, that, that was kind of my thinking. And I look back now, and what we didn't have in those days that I would have loved to major in is... Uh, the curator arts, now they're starting to have more graduating, uh, graduate programs in curation. And I think that would have been interesting. So when you say that, you mean like curating visual arts? Visual arts, like exactly. Normally think of as a curator. Exactly. Because I was, I was always interested in the arts. Even in high school, I would go to galleries and I would always, because I couldn't do that. I didn't believe I could do that. So I wanted to see what others were doing. So that goes back. A long way. Oh, okay. Um, and I remember in the early days of my own gallery, you were a frequent visitor to the I, gallery. I was always at the Hanks Gallery. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you remember me buying the Bearden? I do remember that very well. That, that was, I was thinking about that.
that <laughs> preparing for this that you I think were the only gallery in town other than UCLA so UCLA had the exhibit and then you had many pieces in in the gallery yes and went to the gallery and you know lots of people were there and saw the piece it's part of the Ithaca series yeah the uh, Odysseus suite Odysseus. is what they call it and I said oh I think I'll buy that and I remember I went to the restroom and I thought are you crazy what is wrong with you you have no money <laughs> I said you know what I'm grown I'm just gonna go out there and say I'm so sorry I, I wanted to buy it but I just and when I came out BET was there and they were interviewing black professionals buying black art. Yeah. And they said, we understand that you, you just bought. I said, uh, well, <laughs> so I was kind of stuck. And I was so grateful that I was stuck because it is still over my sofa. Oh, that's great It will to remain hear. over my sofa. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, and I love it. But yeah, that, that was a big deal to buy that piece. And, but now, of course, I'm so grateful I have it. Well, that was fantastic. Actually, that, that brings back memories for me because that does go back quite a that ways in time. That goes back quite a Because I remember that show, and I remember, like you said, there was a, a show also going on, uh, Fear and Swerve, at right. UCLA. Right. And that's, you know, he did that suite as collages and also as um, serographs, and Just, that was great. Yeah, it's the serograph that I have. And and it's, the, it's it was a and, stunning. And we should say, I mean, serograph is a very uh, involved art form. It is not, a lot of people mistakenly think, because it is in the category of prints, I'm just right. throwing this out for our audience, Sure, that that doesn't mean it's a reproduction. That's it's actually correct. its own original work of art. He made a series of um, stencils, and from those stencils uh, emerged this wonderful piece, a Absolutely. series of pieces, actually. Absolutely, and that's, that's what I learned through you about if you wanted to start collecting, but you know, I wasn't in a position to buy a fifty thousand dollar piece or something. Yes. That a serigraph would be a good place to start. Legitimate piece of art by the artist you admired, whether famous or not famous, that is more affordable. If you're just starting to get into that and trying to learn, exactly, about, you know, whatever. So I that that was a lesson that always stayed with me. Exactly, and I'm so glad that uh, you were you were listening because, you know. Bearden himself, along with other artists like right. Charles White and Elizabeth Catlett, they were very devoted and loved the uh, uh, styles of work they could achieve with those various methods like serography, right. woodcuts and lino cuts exactly. and that sort of thing. And in this documentary we were talking about, it was interesting to hear David Driscoll talk about Romare Bearden coming to Driscoll's studio. And Driscoll was trying to kind of do a takeoff on what Bearden was doing. Mm-hmm. And he says, Bearden said to him, yeah, it's fine, but it's not you. And then he had some pieces, Driscoll had some pieces where he had torn the paper. And Bearden said, that's you. Uh You're tearing the paper. He was cutting or doing other things with his paper. Yes. He said, that's you, where where it's ripped and you can see the edges. He said, that's that's your voice. That's Mm -hmm. not trying to be my voice. That's being your own voice. And that's, that's an important lesson, I think, in all of the arts you know, we all have people that we admire sure. and that we think, oh, if I could write like them. But, yeah, but make it your own. How do you make it your own? Exactly. How do you find your own way into that? Exactly. So um, exactly. it was good to hear him say that. Yeah, and, and that's a lesson that cuts across all art forms. All art forms. Yeah. Make it make it your own. You don't want to sound like Miles Davis. Miles sounded like Miles and nobody else does. Exactly. You know, 
So it's interesting, for example, to hear, um, I'm forgetting his, the pianist, um, his pianist. Uh, You're not talking about. Uh, starts with an H. Um, Herbie uh, Hancock. Oh, Herbie Hancock, yeah. To talk about um, how he had to develop his own musical place. Mm-hmm. That, of course, it was great to be with Miles, but how, how was he going to take his own ideas of music forward? Sure. Absolutely. And another interesting little point about Romeo Bearden, by the way, was that he worked full time as a social worker for yeah. several years yeah. and uh, was creating artwork uh, at night, so to speak. There are very few artists who can afford to live on their art alone. Right. I mean, until at some point, perhaps, but certainly. Early That's very on, rare. It's, it's very rare. They're either teaching or something else. I remember when my first book came out, one of my brothers said, so are you quitting your job? I said, what's wrong with you? Let me put it in a term you'll understand. Uh, Stephen King writes a book, and there's probably to begin a quarter thousand, uh, uh, 250,000 copies printed. <coughs> I said, my little book, they've printed 1,000, and I'm very, very happy about that. <laughs> I said, so that just gives you an sc- idea of scale. You know? No, I'm not quitting my job. <laughs> well, you know, it's so funny because I can remember, so I uh, was representing the estate of uh, Walter Williams, and his widow, I never met him, unfortunately, for me. Mm. Uh, but his widow was telling a story about the advice he gave to his son. And he was telling him, actually, advising him not to rely on his art for sustenance. And it was not just because uh, it's kind of risky in terms of you might not be able to make enough money to right. survive. But he had another interesting point, And his point was that let's say you create something that resonates with the audience and then they demand more of the same. The next thing you know, you're cranking out things to please people and make money, and you're not actually creating Absolutely. from the soul, so to speak. And Absolutely. That was an interesting point. Yeah, that's a brilliant point. And I think, I think that's easy to happen across art forms as well. Mm-hmm. You know, People didn't want Miles to change the way that he played. We can think of artists, all, you know, playing different roles in theater or yeah. in movies. Oh, you were so good. We want you to always be James Bond. Well, gee, I thought I'd like to do something else. You know? Oh, yeah. So and, and you hear artists of various stripes talk about that. Absolutely. They're like pinned in, exactly. typecast, if you will. Typecast, you know, and they get stuck. The money's alluring. Yes. Um, fortunately for poets, I don't think people care much, although I have seen some poets that repeat themselves. Mm. And for that reason, for me, are less compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but I, I understand where that instinct comes from. Sure. Because I imagine it's not just money, but it's like praise too, right? I Absolutely. mean, if you're getting praise for a certain Absolutely. thing, it could kind of encourage you to keep doing what exactly. you're being praised for, maybe. Exactly. And, it, and it's, it's the ego wants those strokes. Of course. You know, I have certain poems that people say, oh, please read that poem. I said, I've read that poem Five million times. I'm so sick of hearing myself yeah, yeah. read that poem. But they like it, and your ego likes hearing sure. it. So, yeah, but you've got to force yourself to step out of your comfort zone and do something that's risky, that may or may not work. Um, but at least you can say, I tried I tried something different. And you use the right word, I think, risk. Yeah. It's, it can be risky. It can be risky. In terms of uh, rejection. And Absolutely. It's and then some people, I'd say people, some critics, some individuals who appreciate things, will 
can be kind of cruel and brutal in their criticism. No question about it. (laughs) That little voice could be in your head somewhere. (laughs) We know we're a society that loves to build people up so we can tear them down. Yeah, isn't that something? They were so great yesterday, but today, not so much. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's always that. So that actually leads me to a question I wanted to ask you in terms of uh, what motivates some of the, what informs your poetry? Uh, You spoke about um, your parents being from the Caribbean. Uh, basically, that makes them, I would say, em- immigrants they to were this immigrants, country. Absolutely. Did, did that absolutely. in any way play into? Does that any way in any way play into um, what drives you to yeah. write poetry? I want to. I, I consider myself a storyteller who's chosen the genre of poetry to tell stories. Mm-hmm. I want to save some of that family history, as much of it as I can know or conjure, for the generations behind. We have two new babies in my family and another one that will be here next year. Uh, Later this year, I guess. Congratulations. And they will never have known my parents. They won't know that they came from these tiny little islands unless someone tells them those stories. Mm Mm-hmm. When I started writing, I would ask my brothers, because there's a big age difference between my brothers and myself. I like to remind them of that. (laughs) I would say, what about this? And did you know this or whatever? And at first, they would say, I don't remember. I don't know. Over the years, they'll call me periodically and say, Lynn, you remember when you asked me about that? This is what dad said or this is what mom said. So that I've been able to capture some stories find documents now so much is digitalized online. So, for example, I found the ship my father sailed on that brought him from Barbados to New York. No way. The ship, and it's in a poem, the ship had made this twice, uh, every two-week run between Brazil, stopped in Barbados, and went to New York. Did that for five years. It was decommissioned. When World War II broke out, it was recommissioned. And its first assignment was to go into Norway to evacuate the Jews in Norway. Oh, wow. The Nazis found out about it, bombed the ship, and as far as I know, it's still at the bottom of the Atlantic. Wow. I say all that to say, even when, and I tell my, you know, when I do workshops, even if you don't know the whole story, there is so much online, libraries, uh, military records, census records, that you can start to piece together these histories. In this case, there was a court hearing about what had happened to the ship, and that's where I got all the information about how it had started and where it ended up. So I was able to cut it down and put it in a poem to talk about my father sailing on that ship. Oh, my goodness. That is very... So so when you ask me what what motivates me, um, uh, a big influence on me has been the poet Natasha Trethewey, who was not only the Poet Laureate of the U.S. for two, two terms, I believe, and also the Poet Laureate of um, Mississippi, which is her home state. And she frequently, and she's not the only one who, who does it, but she was the first one that kind of turned the light bulb on for me, of braiding public history with personal history. And I try to do that a lot in my work. Okay, when this was happening to you, what else was happening in the world around you, and why is that important, or how does that braid into your 
story. Mm -hmm. So um, when I found all of this history through the uh, Ellis Island logbooks have all been put online. And not for everybody, because not true for my mom, but for my dad, it had the ship he sailed on, a picture of the ship, the provenance of the ship. So for a poet, it's like, you know, I, I found gold now. I got something to work with now. I guess so, wow. Yeah, yeah. So I'm really driven, <clears throat> long way around to your question, by family history, um, but also by forgotten, more and more so, by forgotten history. Yeah. Those things that people don't really know, or they focus on this big picture, but what was happening just behind that. Mm -hmm. So if I look at a painting, it's not just the painting, it's what brush was used. You know, how, how is the composition derived? Why is it five musicians instead of four? instead of six. Mm -hmm. I, I'm trying to ask other questions other than what's right in front of my face. Very interesting. I was just curious, um, where was the ship when it got sank? Sunk, right? It was off, they were, he, the ship was sailing to Narvik, Norway. Uh -huh. um, I didn't even really think about there being a Jewish population in Norway. Tend to focus on what you're taught in school. It's all about Germany, going into Poland, and, right. and that. So I was kind of surprised at that. So, but it was going into Narvik, Norway. Maybe there were about 2,000 people to pick it up. And, for, and I can't remember the details of how the Nazis found out. Right. But so they were right off the coast or s about to sail into the harbor there. I see. And that's when torpedo. Torpedo. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And do you know what prompted your dad? And there he is. He's on the Caribbean island, and uh, he's thinking to himself, hey, what do I do now? And he decides to come to the U.S. Do you know what made him decide <coughs> that and, uh, and, and how he found out about this ship? I think, I think he had no control over the ship. If he was going to come, he was going to sail. Okay. And that happened to be the ship that was available. Just a, he couldn't even just live, a coincidence. Yeah, he couldn't leave from his island because it's so small. Barbados was big enough to oh. take one of these. I see. Large, so he went from his ships. island to he went Barbados. from his island to Barbados, and this, then the ship sailed into New York. Okay, into Ellis Island. Um, I I suspect as I learn more and more from talking to different people, and I still have family in the islands, uh, doing a little research. There's not any one answer right. to that. He was in his twenties. He was the equivalent of a high school principal down there. Even though he couldn't get a job as a teacher once he came here because he didn't have proper credentials, oh wow! Um, he did teach night school. They let him do that, um, but you know, people still drank that Kool Aid. This is the land of opportunity, even though he plainly knew what life was like in the states for black people, mm -hmm. Negroes, as he said at that point. Um, so I, I think he came for better opportunity among other reasons, probably. Mm -hmm. I believe he was the youngest of seven all sisters. Mm -hmm. But you never know in the islands. So those families are very mixed up. <laughs> so my mother said, they sail from this island to that island. You never know who the daddy is. I said, okay, well, let's, <laughs> let's not dwell on that too long, shall we? <laughs> but it's true, unfortunately. Um, so, yeah, there were probably a lot of reasons that uh, he came. That makes sense. But it's kind of yeah, understandable. Yeah, it's, but, you know, it's easy to say, I'm going to go and live on an island like that. As an American, 
we're so used to all the stimulation you get that when you go there, as lovely as it is, and weekend, you're like, well, what, you know, what are we, where are we going? What are we doing? What's it? There's not that kind of stimulation, and it's a real twist. Um, and I think he was an ambitious guy. Oh, okay. you know, I think he was a very, very ambitious person who thought, you know, I want, I want more for my family. I want to see other things. I want to, I want to try things that I can't try in Saint Vincent, lovely as it is. And did he meet your mom in New York? No, he actually. So he was ten years older than my mom, and I think at that time, early part of the twentieth century, basically you could teach once you were out of high school. And he taught my mother. So like most immigrants, mother comes first. She was 10 when she came. Came with her mother and her aunt to Brooklyn. Everybody came to Brooklyn. Um, West Indians came to Brooklyn. And of course, when daddy came three or four years later, you look up people that you know from the islands. So he looked up my, my aunt. I'm here, you know whatever. I don't know the reason that they moved from New York to Chicago. I can guess a lot of different reasons, but I don't know for a fact why that was. My aunt is in Chicago and has a boarding house, and my dad comes and is living in the boarding house. So my brothers and I would tease my mom and say, that dog, so he's living in the boarding house. You're living in the boarding house. One of my brothers, (laughs) the one that's passed away, interviewed my mom and said, so... At some point, you and Daddy start dating, right? And she said, oh, yeah, we went to a movie. And he says, and then what happened? She said, then we got married. <laughs> there's a long pause, right? That's a pretty big <laughs> leap, right? It's a long pause, and my brother, who is, uh, of all of us, maybe the most formal and, and reserved, said, well, it must have been a hell of a movie. <laughs> so, yeah, wow, you know. And so how did they end up in L.A.? This is Mother's Version. And I'm working on a bunch of poems that are titled In This Version, Then Something Else. Right? Uh, I think it is true that Daddy, who was slight of build, as so many West Indian men are, maybe, maybe he was 5'8", very slender, um, had had asthma as a child, um, developed pneumonia in Chicago, Ooh. and the doctor said, you gotta, you got to get out of this climate. This is not good for you here. And, you know, go west. And so he drove to California with someone else in the boarding house, a Hispanic man, in a poem I wrote. I call him Mr. Rodriguez. I don't know if that's his name or not, but I do know he was Hispanic. He and Daddy drive to California. Mother at the time is in New Orleans, and I realize she's 19. She's beautiful. Suddenly she's married. She goes for a vacation. And I said, well, you know, I just, for some reason, said, how long were you there? I'm thinking vacations like we think vacation. One week, two weeks, three weeks. She right. said, no, two or three months. <gasps> Whoa. I said, you left your husband. In New She's, Orleans, of all places. In New Orleans, of all places. She went with her best friend, who was <laughs> from New Orleans. And then I saw a picture of my mother at 19. Yeah. She's gorgeous. She's got <laughs> the hair come cascading down the shoulder or whatever. <laughs> I said, of course, at 19, right. she suddenly realizes this is her first time on her own. She's either been with her mother, uh, her aunt, or her husband. Uh, okay. Now suddenly, she's on her own. Right. right. She's in New Orleans. 
So I said, well, but you abandoned daddy. She said, eh. <laughs> I said, well, how did you get to California? So my, my great aunt, her aunt, follows daddy to California, starts writing mother and saying, you need to come here and be with your husband. Mother says, I'll, I'll be there any day now. And finally writes her and says, either you come or I'm coming down there to get you. Whoa. So mother finally comes to California. <laughs> so that, that's how they ended up in L.A. And I, I can so hear mother saying, you know, when your father and I arrived, it was just orange groves and there was nothing. There's nothing here. So this was like <clears throat> they not long after World War II, perhaps. No, it was before that. Oh. They came 31 oh, okay. or 32. Huh. And before the war broke out, but during the Depression, they went back to the islands. Oh. Because you couldn't really get much work. And <laughs> there was the dawn of radio. And my dad got very involved in radios. And so he said, Let's go back to the islands. He always wanted to go back home. Mother never did. Let's go back. They have the two boys there, my two older brothers. And my mother said, there's only one problem. Your father thought he was going to work on radio. Then it turned out there was only one radio on the island. So your father took it apart and he put it back together. He took it apart and he put it back together. There's no money in that. <laughs> <laughs> then she gets pregnant with my third brother. And she did. She wanted him born in the states. She wanted him to be in America. So, I see. So they came back. Interesting. I was also curious. So the time they were in New York, you were saying they were in Brooklyn. I think they were in Brooklyn. Yeah. The whole Do you time. know if they had any? Because that's sort of around the time, I guess, or close to the time of the Harlem Renaissance and all the things that were going yeah. on there. Did yeah. They, they ever yeah. speak about Harlem at all? They never really did. I don't know how long they were there. Okay. Um, and. Probably, I do remember Daddy saying that he worked at as a janitor at the uh, Penn Station. Mm -hmm. I think Penn Station in New York. But Mother was a lot younger, so I, I don't think she would have had any recollection. Because when she, she came in 1920 and she was 10. So, um, yeah, I, I, think, I think that probably wouldn't have been so much on their radar screen. I was thinking about what's going on now, right, yeah. for example. So yeah. you are the poet laureate for the city of Los Angeles. I am. And that occurred a, a year ago. Exactly. Uh, can you talk about that? I mean, first of all, how long is the term of a poet laureate? Uh, for the Los Angeles poet laureate, it's two years. Two years. So my term will expire, scheduled to expire December 30th of this year. Of this year, okay. Um in terms of how I got it, um, maybe you're asking about that. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I would obviously they saw your talent and wow. uh, appreciated that for <laughs> sure. I mean, that has to be like a prerequisite, I'm sure. But um, I was also curious. I mean, please tell us how you got it. But I'm also curious as to what exactly, uh, if you could tell everybody what what it is and, and what are the responsibilities or absolutely, it's it's considered the literary ambassador for the city, on behalf of the city. Okay. The Poet Laureate position is a joint program with the city and the L.A. Public Library System. Oh, uh, okay. The, so there's an expectation that you'll work closely with the library and give readings, give workshops. The only little problem is nobody thought about this little pandemic coming down the pike. Uh, yes. So ordinarily, 
the poet laureate would be going hither, thither, and yon, talking to children, talking to seniors, going, doing all of that. Well, of course, now everything is by Zoom. Right. We're starting a little bit to go back into being in the public public spaces a little bit, and we were kind of coming out of it between Delta and then Omicron, Omicron right. hit. So that's been a bit of a challenge, but um, you know, people people are very creative. And the good thing about it for writers, not just poets, but all writers, all artists, I've noticed museums have put their collections online so you can have virtual tours of collections, which is fabulous. You could never get to New York. Well, guess what? Now you can go on and see the Met collection, oh, the sure. Guggenheim collection, yeah. and the um, uh, National uh, Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C., can see so much of their collections online so that's a real gift that's a plus yeah. that's a real plus and so the readings gravitated to going online so going back to the poet laureate i've been doing a lot of work online oh uh, a lot of readings online workshops online um arguably you're supposed to write a poem for the city but they haven't asked me yet but i do have poems about los angeles specifically ah. um so that's that's part of it and just representing the city in any way you can with respect to all things po- poetry. So I've been working on some projects, the, the biggest of which, and the one I started right away, is called Poems on Air, which is a podcast, a weekly podcast. I read poems of other people and give a very short introduction mm-hmm. um, into the poet, what they've accomplished, et cetera, and then I read the poem. And it's hosted on the L.A. Public Library website as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Oh, okay. So people can tune in once a week. I, they're posted every Thursday. Please, everyone, um, uh, check it out and by all means. And they can get, it, get to it by those means you just said, Spotify. Absolutely. If they go to Spotify and put in Poems on Air, it should come up. Or put in my name, Lynn Thompson. Oh, okay. It should come up with that and the the libraries if you go to the website not the collection it's a little counterintuitive but if you go to the website and put in poems on air it'll it'll come up uh, fantastic and and you do it once a week once, once a week once a week and i am i am very happy to admit that i essentially stole the idea from our former us poet laureate tracy k smith wonderful poet who had a program um blanking right now on the name but she did it every day oh wow big commitment there wow i don't know how i all i can think is she must have had people mm-hmm. she she at the time was a professor at princeton and i was thinking maybe she had her students helping you because what happens is you start doing the research for the poems that you want to read mm-hmm. maybe you have a theme one month maybe you don't so for black history month i'm reading all african-american poets you don't want the poem to be too long. You don't want the poem to be too short. You don't want the poem to have any words that small children couldn't listen to because it's on the library's website sure. and it's supposed to be for a broad audience. Right. So there have been poems I've looked at and thought, well, you know, no nudity, no <laughs> profanity. <you know. laughs> so you're really, you're really looking for what's going to work well on a podcast. I want to make sure that I can read it. So, for example, I was interested in reading some poetry of wonderful Native American artists, poets. 
but I'm so worried about butchering the pronunciation that I've decided against it. Not because the poems aren't fantastic, but because I want to be sure that I'm doing the poem justice. The good thing is the library is allowing me to do a periodic blog. So I will write about those sorts of things where for whatever reason I feel like I couldn't read it on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, it was too long. It was, you know, I'm not going to read a haiku. Um, so, yeah. So how she did that every single day is beyond me. <laughs> or maybe she recorded you know, 20 of them at a time. Right. I don't know. Um, uh, but, yeah, I couldn't do that. <laughs> I can understand. So, so, so once a week is more it's than more enough. more than enough. It's more than enough. Yeah. And when it was announced that you were the poet laureate, I understand you read a, one of your poems. I did. Called, am I right, Red Jasper? Is that? I read very good. I yeah. read Red Jasper. Absolutely. And, and why did you select that particular one? <clears throat> because it's iconic L.A. It's about the freeways in L.A. Ah, the poem is a based on a true event. I'm coming home one Friday night, regular Friday night, nothing special about it, freeways packed. As I always tell people, if you live in Los Angeles, you have to ask yourself the following questions. Are the Dodgers playing? Are the Lakers playing? Are the Rams playing? <laughs> uh, is it the Academy Awards? Is the president in town? you got to know all those things. Of course, right. In order to be able to navigate your way around, yeah. especially during traffic hour. And God forbid there would be an accident. And right? it, oh, accident car 18 wheeler turned over whatever <laughs> so we're coming home coming down coming south on the five freeway turning north onto the 110 toward pasadena all the drivers we didn't come to a complete stop although i say that in the poem but pretty close to a complete stop because right in front of us was the biggest moon i had ever seen oh wow and found out later it's a harvest moon it was an orange, mm-hmm. bright orange, and it looked like you could just reach out and touch it. Wow. And, you know, I looked at the driver next to me who was also had the mouth, mouth just completely open. Mm-hmm. So it was a great opportunity to talk about driving on the freeway, talked a little bit about Dodger Stadium, talk <laughs> about 18-wheelers, which drive us all crazy, and all of that, and then that you come around, heading towards the Arroyo Seco, and here's this moon. Ah, excellent. So I, I just felt it was a very iconic type of Los Angeles poem to, yeah, to it read. Yeah, sounds, it sounds so, very appropriate yeah, for sure. Yeah, i <laughs> that one. And also I just want to point out uh, that in this catalog, this is from a show that occurred in my gallery in 2003. God, it's You're, hard to believe it was that long. Yeah, I mean, as, as I say the same thing. It's just incredible to think. But you... All right, you have like two poems and uh, two. Let's see, is it two? I think or I more? do have no two. more. You actually oh. have three. Oh, okay. And one of them though is inspired by William Pajot, one of my favorite artists of all time, who you introduced me to, who was so sweet. Yes, just the nicest man. Yes, indeed, and his it's one of his images that's on the cover of this particular. Absolutely. Album. And actually, the piece behind me is by him. I noticed that, and it's I so appropriate that. for him because he always uh, respected and admired his dad's uh, performing as a. Trumpet player, band leader for various bands in New Orleans. Speaking exactly. of New Orleans, right, right, so, and a lot of his uh, of his paintings are very uh, musically music, ex- exactly. You know, he's painting musicians. He's he's painting um, nightclubs <clears throat> or night scenes. So yeah. So once again, <laughs> I just point that up for a number of reasons, but one of them is to show the interplay between the arts. I mean, Absolutely. He's influenced by his dad, who was a musician. The music he played was an influential thing. Absolutely. And so Pajo's art was influential in you, inspiring. Very much so. Much 
Uh, are there any other visual artists that uh, inspire your, your work as a poet that you can name? Um, I have written a poem, uh, something of a collage poem, one might call it, which is perfect for this artist, um, Betty Saar. Ah, Betty. Um, are a true treasure and icon for us here Still in Southern with California. Us, by the way. Still working. Just amazing. I saw her not too long ago. She looks fantastic. Um, in her 90s, I In her had. 90s. I think she's 94. Um, and because she's an assemblage artist, yes. that's the title of the poem, assemblage. And I, it's, a, it's supposed to be uh, interpreted as an autobiographical piece, but it uses titles of her work oh, fantastic. to create a biography. Oh, that's fascinating. So that's, that's one influence. Um, uh, I do have a piece based on Juan Moreau's painting, Dog Barking at the Moon. Oh, my goodness. And it's um, hopefully the reader or the listener will see a blank canvas become that painting as I talk about it. I see. Because um, I, I, I started out, the canvas is talking, and the canvas is saying, I see what you've done to these other canvases. What, do you, what ideas do you have for me? And the, and the poem is built on the painting appearing. Oh, I love that. So that that was an influence. Um, and I, I know I have others. I have one um, based on a, a, a John Biggers piece about one of those uh, shotgun houses. Ah, short, yes. Short piece based on that. So, yeah, they, they show up quite, quite frequently <laughs> in my work. And sometimes, oh, and I have one. I thought about you with this poem. One, um, another artist that you taught me to appreciate uh, is Archibald Motley. Ah, yes. So I have a couple of pieces that are based on him, on some of his work, night, the nightclub scenes. So, yeah, it, it, work, it works its way into my poetry quite frequently. Uh, I love that. I love that. And I also love the fact you're a collector of art, you're an, you appreciate art, visual arts, uh, all the arts, actually. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. As no, a, I, I, uh, I have a, a pretty decent collection, I have to say. I'm very proud of it. And I think it was you... <laughs> taught me you know you learn these things you you realize you have a certain set of expectations or assumptions that are probably wholly wrong and I remember (laughs) saying to you there's some piece I was admiring in your gallery and you said you know well what are you are you thinking of buying it and I said well you know I don't have any more wall space and he said you know you rotate the art (laughs) I said what I'm done. You know, my wall space is all filled. He said, oh, no. He said, it's like clothing. You you rotate. The, I'll never forget that because I hadn't really thought about it right. that way. Yes. This painting doesn't always have to be there. It could be some other. <gasps> You're not done. He said, you said, you are not done. <laughs> you are so not done. And I thought, oh, my God. This yeah. is, <laughs> and and that so was fun. quite a revelation. Yeah, no. It's so, and it's so funny because a lot of the collectors that I, I interact with and, and talk to and sell to and so forth do just that. Yeah. And uh, okay, so I just I'm thought that was a, a way to handle it. <laughs> Although, you know, most collectors are, will tell you, I mean, it's like they can't, they collect because they actually have to. Yeah. They can't yeah. not collect. You can't collect. It's, it's the way I feel about writing poetry. When students ask, um, do you ever worry about, um, you know, writer's block? I said, I don't believe in it. I said, you can't have writer's block. Well, suppose you don't have an idea. I said, when I don't have an idea... I write out longhand someone else's poem just to see how they did it, mm-hmm. how it's working. I said, if you listen to it, that's one level. 
of enjoyment. If you read it in a book, that's another level of enjoyment. If you write it out yourself and really think about the line breaks and how the music, you know, that's something else for you as a writer that will inform what you do. And it's so funny because you're anticipating a question I, I was going to ask you, and that is what advice would you give uh, writers and young writers and so forth? And to me, that's a very good piece of advice. Absolutely. Because I think every everybody encounters that point where they feel, oh, my God, what am I going to say now? Right. But that's a very, I think, interesting way of And don't expect it. every poem to be the best poem you ever write. Oh, You're going to write a hundred lousy poems to get one really decent poem. Right. And so it, it, the writer's block is because, oh, you're afraid it's not going to be, you know, the next Shakespeare. Nobody's going to be the next Shakespeare. Shakespeare wasn't the next Shakespeare because he was borrowing from Greek myth and all of that. So when you, when you think about that, h- how is it possible to have writer's block? Just write out some words. Right. Look up some words you don't know. I just, I just don't believe in it because all of those things, even if I'm not writing a poem per se, are going to end up in the, in the project in the image. They're going to end up in the poem in some way because you've done this other kind of work and you read everything. That's my other piece of advice. Read everything. Read cereal boxes. Read throwaway newspapers. Read science magazines. If you're not a scientist, you will find something, and that language will show up in your poetry. Excellent. That's my advice. That's excellent advice. I, I like that, yeah. Um, before we end it, I do want to ask you if you would be so kind as to maybe read a poem or so, or two, or however many you want to read. Well, I, I was looking at my poems, and I thought I should read something that inspired on art so um, why don't I read the one that was inspired by Pao Zhou oh that'd be great uh, I think the name of the piece is the Rampart Street Ladies ah that was the one that's in the in the catalog in the catalog yeah, right? yeah exactly the house of many pleasures it never matters what time it is in Rampart's house of many pleasures because there's always a scent of incense between the hours of bourbon and no goods. In the violet dusk, some cool papas with coin are always sniffing after us. They beg us to low-tone their bugles, slide their water keys to shake our castanets. In the scarlet a.m., some used-to-be somebody's mama always shows up asking after her Tom, Dick, or Harry, all the while memorizing the scent of our brass. But we're no diminuendos, and we cannot be riffed. There is no other, no Skylark, nor sweet Lorraine. We're the blues the world forgets when we lie between a man's thighs, perfume of sin and reefer bleeding from our fingertips. We are wild cats for a sweet daddy. We bite when you beg us. Here, in this Sidney Bechet dark, this fugue for the hardcore, we slide bronze and wet from Louis' horn at half-past dreams in this house of lethal delights where you tell us your tawdry secrets no matter what time the violet dusk, the scarlet a.m., where we taste of cinnamon, taste of clove, about the time that we surrender, about the time we slide you down slow. Brilliant. I love it. <laughs> so that, that was inspired by... Um, by Pao Zhou's piece. <laughs> Excellent. So. Excellent. 
know, because they're, they're telling stories. Absolutely. Telling stories. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Oh, you're welcome. And one last thing before we go, is there anything uh, that you're working on or that's coming in the future you want to let everybody know about? Um, well, I always have a million projects in my head. It's a, it's a matter of which one really grabs on and takes hold. Sure. Um, I do have a group of poems that I hope to publish, a new collection of poetry, but it hasn't quite gelled yet. Mm. I, I tell the poems, talk, talk among yourselves and get together, and they haven't gotten so I'm working on that. And I'd also like to put together an anthology of the poems I selected for the podcast, oh. but with a little bit longer introduction of the poems, tentatively with this idea of why I chose them. You know, there are a, a kajillion poems. Why did you choose these particular poems for your podcast? So I thought maybe a little essay, and then uh, I would have to get permissions for the poem and all sure. that. But um, that that's what I'm thinking about doing. Excellent. Please, everybody, be on the lookout for that. And one final thing: uh, Am I right? You've, you've obviously you've been published, but do you have a, your own book of poems? Yes. So I have three collections of poems. Please let us know about those. All of them. You'll be very proud of this. I've been very uh, lucky and insistent about this. I wanted to have artists of color on all of my books. So the first one is "Beg No Pardon." Um, this is a piece by. Uh, Richard Yard, oh. called The Ring Shout. Excellent. So that was my first book. I love that piece. My me. second book is Start With a Small Guitar. And this piece is uh, by the artist Gronk, who lives here in Los Angeles. And he has used this figure, La Tormenta, for a lot of his pieces. She's always got her back to the viewer. Ah. But when I picked it up, I said, now, I got a little bit of a problem. I said, I can't have a white lady cover I said I, I, I just I can't do that he said that's not a problem so as far as I all he did was put some stripe of color on her back <laughs> and on her arms I see that yeah and so I as far as I know I'm have the only uh La Tormenta of color <laughs> fantastic okay <laughs> and then um I went to to scripts with Allison Saar and she's a friend and told me that when you're ready just come and pick out something so she allowed me, and I need to open this up, oh my to goodness. Uh, use that. this piece that for the is, cover of my last book, Fretwork. That is fantastic. Isn't that fantastic? And I loved that the design, whoever designed the cover, whose name I should know, I apologize for that, was able to wrap the whole piece around. That is great. So it kind of goes around to it the back cover to as the well. Back. Exactly. And we exactly. should say Allison Saar is Betty Saar's daughter. Absolutely. That is fantastic. And a wonderful artist in her own right. Speaking of collaboration, so we both went to Scripps. She's got the 13-foot uh, statue of Harriet Tubman in Harlem. She did about a, a two-and-a-half-foot mock-up of it that she donated to the college. To Scripps College. To Scripps College. Uh, they wanted to start a sculpture garden, so Allison's piece was the first piece that they selected. Oh, my God, that's fantastic. And they fantastic. called me, and you'll love this story, actually. They called me and said, do you want to write a poem? We'll pay you. That's excellent. You never know going to get paid as a poet. <laughs> like a bonus. It's a bonus. Um, you and Allison can have this collaboration. Sure, 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 I'll do it. So I'm doing my research about Harriet Tubman, et cetera. The poem is not coming. I called the college, and I said, do you have the statue there? And they said, yeah. I said, can I just come out and see it? And they said, sure. So I'm sitting in the storage room with Harriet, and I said, girlfriend, you got to talk to me. Tell me something. i got to do this poem. It's getting time. It's getting short. Went home that night and wrote the poem just like that. 
I love sat it. with her for about an hour, you know, looked at how Allison had constructed it or whatever, and the poem, poem came that way. I love it. I love so, it. It's so basically that's a, about collaboration. I was going to say, that's great, and it's also a practical application of your advice, you know, Absolutely. how to break the, the writer's block. Exactly. Out. That is exactly. fantastic. You've got to figure out a way in. <laughs> Absolutely. This has been an absolute joy, man. Thank you again for joining us and sharing your perspective. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you have this podcast. I'm honored to have been a part of it. We have a lot of good memories, and I was happy that we could share so many of them today. And thank you for sharing them, and it brings back fond memories. Absolutely. Absolutely. So once again, everybody, uh, thank you for joining us, and don't forget to subscribe. (laughs) 